Hi, everyone, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. We're a podcast about the classical world. Old books, old thoughts, old philosophers, old stuff. And we're trying to bring that world to you in a way that's fun and whimsical. And oh. uh, yeah, I don't know about whimsy. Or is it we whimsy? We, Do we have some whimsy? Every once in a while. Does banter count as whimsy? I think so. Okay. Anyway, my name is AJ Hannenberg. I'm here with two of my colleagues, Graham Donaldson. Hi. And Thomas Magby. Hello. You, just, you did not sound excited about well, that. Well, I was thinking about like... Your lack of Are whimsy. we whimsical? Is whimsy... So is... Okay. How would you... What's whimsy in the past tense? Um, whimsed. Yeah. There you go. Whimsed, whimsed. Yeah. Ha, hath we whimsed? Is that your question? No, no. I'm just trying to like... Is it even a verb? Mm, no. 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 Uh, it's a noun. It's whimsy. a noun. So then how would... So okay. So then you don't need to do anything. But you could <laughs> verb it. Anyway, whatever. Whim- okay. And in any case, we all three work. <laughs> you two t- teach English. This is boggling my mind. Okay, whatever. Verbing weird's language. Yeah, can- <laughs> what is happening? I'm um, quoting Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> is that actually true? Yeah. Okay. In any case, we all three work at a classical school in Austin, Texas named Veritas Academy. And as far as I, I know, we all three like working here. Yes, true. And today we are discussing personal hygiene. Mm-hmm. So specifically the different types of cleaning products. Uh, many of them come in bars. Some of them come in, in uh, liquid form. So- soaps is. Oh my word. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I had no idea. Are Graham, Graham had a very confused like, look on his okay, face. The so whole time. audience, you don't get that pun quite yet, but you'll get it in you 38 will. minutes. Okay, 38 <laughs> minutes when so, we get soaps. So finish this podcast, go back to the beginning and, and then, then laugh. Yeah, yeah. to my intro. This is really good. Just, yeah, it's good. just gold. <laughs> yeah. So no, today, audience. gentlemen, okay. yeah. we are going to be talking about perhaps one of the most manly things you wow. can do. Okay. And that is Belching. to analyze. Well, that's well, that's one of them. But we're going to analyze poetry. Ooh, awesome. What's, now, I mean, I, is there a connection to manliness? I, it did. Okay. I don't say that tongue in cheek. Although, I mean, so I think poetry gets the the rap of being like I don't know, kind of um, like lame or hmm. hoity-toity or um, or perhaps uh, done in the realm of like fifteen-year-old girls in love, <laughs> and it's but. Or 15-year-old boys, um, boys trying to right. woo the 15-year-old girls. But uh, when I started reading poetry and uh, and had a, some good teachers who taught it, I was like, oh, no, there's, like, blood and guts here. There's, like, good stuff. There is... Depends on the poem that you're reading? Yeah. No, okay. there's... there's there's uh, Anyway, it was... Or there's also something inherently, um, I don't know, just rugged about putting emotion into a form, right? Like... As opposed to just sort of emoting, taking that thing and harnessing it into uh, and putting it into a form feels very, I don't know, it just, it feels very commanding. Hmm. I agree. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I, I can, I can get behind that. I'm on board for poetry. Excellent. Okay, cool. <laughs> so we are going to be talking about poetry today, how to re- basically maybe how to read a poem. This would be a little bit of a like intro to all of the things of poetry. Um, and then hopefully we can have a conversation about like... A subjective experience of a poem versus is there some kind of, um, I guess maybe the, over, the overall, I don't want to say objective, but the like quote unquote meaning or, or reading of a poem that um, this is what I was when I was in school, I would have teachers and they would say, um, when I'm teaching you this poem, I'm doing a reading of it. In other words, I'm doing an interpretation, almost like, um, well, almost Almost like biblical interpretation, almost like a, uh, what's that word, hermeneutic of, of poetry. But anyway, so we'll start with the basics. So, poetry. 
Um, the, the thing that I was told, or the one way to think about poetry, I think this is a really helpful way to think about it, is um, if a long-form television show, like six seasons of a show on Netflix, if that is akin to a novel, right? You have all this space in mm -hmm. order to develop a character and to have multiple different characters. You have all this time, all this space um, for that story. And a two-hour movie, an adventure movie, a superhero movie, or even a, a drama or whatever, would be akin to a short story. You can really only do one thing well. Or a novella. Yeah, or mm -hmm. an, yeah, something... Like a, a short novel, a, 100 a, pages. A short novel, yeah. 100 yeah. pages. Um, you can really only do one or two things really well in a two-hour movie. Star Wars. Um, <laughs> or no didn't, things yeah, well. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Which they didn't even achieve that. No, because okay. they did a thousand things. You can things. throw yeah, some anyway. stuff at a wall and see what's... They achieved yeah, nostalgia. No. Okay. No. Only in you, maybe. Sorry, I'm the only one with a heart here. Well, I also oh. didn't watch it. Because... Oh, well, that might be the reason that... <laughs> okay. I I engage being heartless. Good. Um, okay. Hand good. and bot. Good for sure. Yeah, <laughs> naturally. Anyway, so then with those two things, then I, the, a way to think mm -hmm. of a poem is like a photograph. Maybe it can tell a story... Maybe it just leaves an impression. It's an image. Um, it is sort of one stagnant thing. Now, of course, you could maybe quibble with this definition, say, if you had longer poems and, you you know, like the Iliad is a poem and that's not a photograph. But I'm thinking like... Yeah, the Iliad's a poem, but it's it's epic poetry. It's different yeah. than a standard poem. And, and might I suggest instead Please. of a picture, a gif. That that moves back and forth. Yeah, one? it's like a really? short. It's a short vignette, right? Uh -huh. It's not just a photo. It's uh -huh. maybe like a little bit of movement, kind of an impression, yeah. really fast. Are there artistic gifs yet? And is that the is that the canonical way of saying it? It is not a gif. It's a gif. Gra it a GIF. It's because the the G stands for graphical. Does it matter that okay. the guy who made the file format calls it a gif? Does that matter? No. Okay. Yeah, I think I, I think so. it's a gif. It's graphical. That's the okay. Anyway, are there are gif there is a peanut butter naturally? Yes. Are there artistic gifs? Uh, now I'm going to find out. You mean, yeah. but you mean, you guys no, I mean like, like, like high art? All of them. I don't, of them. <laughs> I don't understand. What do you mean? Um, anyway, so... I'll as long as I enjoy it, it's art, Googles right? Away. Okay. Um, for memes. Uh, for memes. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, a, a poem, maybe a smaller poem, a lyric poem, is something that uh, more evokes an emotion as opposed to tells a big, long, coherent narrative. So... Um, a poem that I think that could be a good representation of this one is the famous one by Ezra Pound. I think it's called like something in a subway, like Reflections in a Subway or something like that. I can't remember what it's called, but it, this is the entire poem. And this would be an example of a poem that is just trying to evoke one sentiment. Um, you could almost even see the picture in your mind. So here's the poem. The apparition of the faces in a crowd. Petals on a wet black bow. That's it? That's it. Can I say it is in a station of the metro? Oh, there you go. In a station of the metro. I think it was written in 1913. 1913. The apparition of faces in a crowd. Petals on a wet black bow. Right? There's an example of a poem that is just um, a snapshot, an image. It has um, a hint at something deeper. It has a hint of something symbolic. And we'll talk about what a symbol is in a second. But this is what, when, when I think of, of a poem as, as just one little image or as an, a little animated gif, did you find any Hanenberg? I definitely found some artistic <laughs> gifs. There is one that is a bunch of portraits all sort of fading into one another. Uh, there's, yeah, there, there's a few. Some of them are not impressive. There's one of Homer fading into leaves. I don't think that's that artistic. 
Like Simpsons Homer, just to be yeah. Clever. But the leaves are all colorful, <laughs> as if they were a Oscar podcast. I, thank you. Very, I just There's to be one sure. of Starry Night, but it's sort of animated. Oh, so it's oh. like swirling around. Yeah, it's swirling around. It's all fun. And oh, okay. then okay, yeah, well, there you go. All right, so maybe. Yeah, sure. So, um, but anyway, sure. so the idea of yeah, so a poem uh, as a photograph that that was a helpful little thing for me when I first started reading poetry was to think of here is a thing that is just supposed to leave an impression. Um, so there's a couple of different. Um, ways that you can read a poem. Or if you were teaching it, there's a, there's a couple of ways that you can talk to a student about the experience of a poem. One would be, I guess, what you would call just a personal reading or an experiential reading. So poetry is words put together, and some of them are just enjoyable merely for the experience of listening to them or reading them out loud. Um, uh, can I say, so your reading of The Wasteland which is one of our previous episodes. Like, I just think that is a good way for anyone to listen or experience that poem is to hear your, your, you have done the interpretive work for it, which changes the way you read it. It, it makes it a different experience to hear you reading that poem. Yeah. There are, um, the more you, you sort of like a poem or fall in love with a poem and come back to it, uh, it is enjoyable just to to read it out loud. There are sections of Paradise Lost that I, every year, I'm like, all right, I should probably have a student read this out loud, but gosh darn it, I want to read it because it's so good. And I selfishly keep that reading to myself. <laughs> when mainly I was in because po- I'd also don't want to hear the kid be like... <laughs> to like butcher or whatever. Yeah, or get. just read monotone line <laughs> by line. It seems like all my students are convinced that just because something is a classic, it needs to be dour and somber. Yeah. Even when it's like... Definitely not. Definitely not. It's, it's Achilles screaming because he's been offended. They're like, and Achilles screamed at the. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's epics aren't necessarily that way. Anyway, I was, was going to say, I forgot. Um, so I, I think it's wholly appropriate to for people to have a poem and read it and uh, just enjoy it for the the sensual experience of the words and the rhythm and the meter and the sound. That's that's really good. It's super frustrating when you have like a class where you're going to talk about pers- – no one wants to hear a teacher stand up at the podium or stand up at the front and talk about like their own personal reflections on mm. a poem or how this poem means. We do this with songs, right? Like there are songs that I listen to now that all of a sudden I'm like back in first year university, mm-hmm. you know, trucking down the road with the sweet taste of freedom. And Wearing your jinkos. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Smuggle – yeah, with the, uh, you put basketballs in those things. <laughs> I kept um, a whole family of hamsters in the yeah. pockets of mine. Did you actually? No, I, but oh. you could. Like, I could fit a whole baseball bat down just the pocket. I never wore Jinko jeans, just for the record, podcast listeners. I did. <laughs> I did not either. Um, you know, there's, so there's your own personal uh, recollections of things. Right. And those are essentially useless when it comes to talking <laughs> about them. Oh, my God. Academically you're, or, or oh. linguistically or talking about them in terms of interpretation. Because your experience is going to be totally different. different than many others, especially if it's like a personal meaning. That's right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but those that still, they matter, enjoyable but they thing. Yeah. I guess I'm, you're trying to, you were trying to say that they're not useful in teaching the poem. Like, no, I'm trying to say that they're, if you're, if you are trying to read a poem and have it be connected to other poems or the great, or the, we'll talk a little bit about like the great conversation that older poems very often are referencing and talking to earlier mm-hmm. poems. And so your own personal meaning of that means absolutely doesn't really mean anything when you're when you are wanting to have that kind of conversation um 
if you have your own personal understanding of what I'll give you. So, okay, I'll give you a really frustrating example. So in senior year of high school, our teacher uh, said, all right, guys, our drama teacher. And he was think of the stereotypical high school drama teacher. And that was him. Um, just an interesting fellow. Anyway, um, we had an assignment and was it so was kind. like, he wanted you to do a two minute, almost just like a little symbolic representation of your childhood on stage. That was the assignment. It was like, tell me your childhood. I believe the name of the assignment was, who are you? <laughs> oh no. Yes. I love it. And, um, and then one kid just sat on stage and had a spotlight on him and, Behind the curtain, up above, like in the in the, I don't know, the rafters of the stage, he had his buddies just like drop leaves, and the leaves were just falling. And for like two minutes, he was just sitting on stage with leaves falling around. This giant pile of leaves was kind of growing up around him. And at the end of it, the teacher was like, "Wow, powerful!" <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that all, sounds like he did it the day had before, to yeah. rake leaves the day before, <laughs> right. and then just at eleven p.m. remembered, "Oh no!" <laughs> anyway, and so the, but I think the kid was into it. Anyway, the kid came up and the teacher was like, "So what does that mean? Explain it to us." And this student went on to this whole big interpretation of what leaves personally meant to him, and it had nothing to do with like leaves. Like if you think of leaves as a symbol, the passing of time, mm-hmm. death. You know, uh, uh, when Shakespeare talks about. You know, like the was um, it pun based? Like no. everyone I love leaves. No, 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 no. It wasn't pun based. He was like leaves to me represents like it was something completely nonsensical to leaves. Like leave to me. Like I thought of every leaf as like a member of my family. Or it was just like what it doesn't make any sense. Well, I had a big family. Yeah, but anyway, so like because he had this personal interpretation of what a leaf meant to him. You sitting there watching it. I mean, it's you would never get it, and it was it sort of lacked. It didn't have any – there was no entrance for the audience. You had no way of, of getting inside. Uh, it, was only, it was only meaningful to the artist. Let's put it that way. Okay. That makes um, sense. And, uh, so, and so that would make sense for, again, the high school poetry you talked about before. It's only about expressing, like, my one emotion to yeah. one other person. There's nothing wrong if you read a poem and you have a personal connection to it. It's, if it's only meaning, if if, if the only meaning. if your reading of it is only meaningful to you because of your own specific time and context, it's not going to go any beyond that. Sure. You're sort of stuck in your own experience of the poem, which but, is totally fine, but it's just small. And you can't recreate that for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like if if that if a particular song takes you back to first year university, that song is going to do something completely different for me, and it will never mean for me what it does for you. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And you sharing that with me isn't going to induct me into loving the song. Yeah, like Hannenberg, I know you have a personal connection to uh, Death Cab's, what is it, Transatlanticism? Oh my gosh, yes. So you have a personal connection to that song, and I like, you know, I like that song. Is that the whole album, or is that just the one song? uh, The whole album is a special thing for me. I I would save it for return trips home, specifically from Seattle, and then I would try to plan it so that the I Need You So Much Closer crescendo Mm -hmm was happening right as I crested the hill into Spokane. Because, <laughs> That's awesome. Because as you drove over this hill, the entire city would open up before you and yeah. all the lights would be there. And so whenever I hear that song, I think of home. And I also mm. saw them live once oh. and was near the front row. And when they played that song, I just openly wept. Like sure. it was, I didn't even have anyone to miss. Mm. But I was like, I don't know who to miss, but I miss someone. Or I don't even have a girlfriend. And I just, I just was weeping. It was, sure. and so that whole album has really, like it was, 
early college, all the way through my college experience, Death Cab was like a big thing. And so that whole album, which I maintain is still one of the best albums ever written, is so powerful for me. And I think it's catchy. Right, like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Because that's what I was going to ask. Have you, have you shared it with high schoolers and seen them have some kind of similar reaction to that? I think there is a set specific series of reactions that you can have to Death Cab, mm-hmm. but I don't think it'll mean for them unless the same thing. they establish their own experiences sure. the same thing. Sure. Right, like you probably will feel something. The the I need you so much closer. Sure. That sentiment will resound. Yeah. And this is moving to the next part of the of yeah. the interpretation of poetry, which is fine. So audience. Go check that album out if you haven't. Like it's, I really do think it's one of the best albums ever written. So then, so the second thing uh, is the poem's meaning of in and of itself. Insofar as there is a meaning that can be understood, now we get into what are what I I don't know if everybody calls it this. This is what my teachers called it: a, a reading of a poem, an interpretation of a poem. So let's read this poem and let's try to interpret it. Um, and. I wouldn't say that there's consensus when it comes to readings of poetry, but I get the sense that there are things that are closer to a a sound reading, and then there's just wackadonk uh, interpretations of poetry where someone is is completely out to lunch. And then the third level of the reading of poetry is poetry in relationship to other major poems. And this is where it gets way more speculative, um, is... Um, for example, that poem that I just read, The Apparition of the Faces in a Crowd, Petals on a Wet Black Bow. That idea of petals on a wet black bow, there's, um, oh shoot, where's that Shakespeare sonnet? Um, there's a Shakespeare sonnet where he's talking about uh, time and how it's like uh, the fall of leaves. I have it here somewhere, just give me a sec. Did he sit um, on a stage while he wrote it? Shakespeare? Oh yeah, and have them all the leaves fall. All the leaves around. fall all around him. Shakespeare was in your senior English uh, liter- uh, theater class. I think yeah, so here, so this one. Is it 73? Um, uh, <laughs> the time of year thou mayest yep. in me behold, when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. Like, Shakespeare is talking about the passage of time and the, the, the boughs of trees like a bare ruined choir where the birds used to sing, but now they're empty, and is this a grumpy old guy poem? Yeah, this is one of his grumpy. This is one of his like, I'm dying, but you make me happy. One of those were one of his sonnets. But that that little section you wrote is the like, I used to be all happy and sing. And no, he's talking about the, the color. He's talking about hang. him, him himself getting old. Anyway, my yeah. point is, is Ezra Pound making reference to this poem when he writes about um, betel, uh, petals on a, on a wet black bow? Right? Is he because this is Shakespeare? He, this is famous. Right. So then, the, the the open question is: Is he thinking about this poem or not? The poems are bound to get not bound, but the poems are linked together in the the shared imagery, the um, the the bow and and the fact that there are now once alive, now dead things on the bow, the petals, and then also the leaves, and so because they share that symbol. Can you import the interpretation of Shakespeare's poem onto Ezra Pound's poem? Yes. This is so. This is what um, you have um, to, right? Well, I, this is the debate. Okay. I think so. This is where it gets highly speculative, where you're like, oh, he's talking about petals on a wet black bough. Um, let's go back, and if I go and read that Shakespeare poem and have a reading of that, so if you get it sort of its own isolated, independent reading of that poem, can you take that those the conclusions and the sort of the poetic poetic expression of the Shakespeare poem and bring it to bear 
on this two-line Ezra Pound poem and use that to sort of help open up and unlock this poem. Some people say yes. Some people say that's a perfectly acceptable thing to do. This is the canon. This is the great conversation. And some people say it's so highly speculative. This is this is sort of like two steps removed from madness. Uh, yeah. So you're making the point that Ezra Pound would have read that sonnet. And so it would be reasonable that he's referencing it. But that's probably also um, that only as a reference to the second line. So what is there in the first that also points to... Uh, ancient works. I, I feel like you faces in a crowd. Dante, right? Faces in hell. I, that, I don't know. Well, you know? That, that, that language of apparition, yeah. right? Kind of like a ghostly or spiritly kind of kind of look to him. So I, uh, I think you have, I think you have to that the, this poem does not exist in a vacuum, and so there is a history to it that then culminates in some mm-hmm. sense in this poem in 1913, and then others since then who have read it and responded in their own way. And I think there are. It, within this conversation, there are safer bets, and then there <laughs> sure. are completely speculative. Yes, that's yeah, funny. Totally. Yeah, that's yeah. a great this point. This one sounds real speculative, but the connection between Beowulf and The Hobbit, I, I, granted, neither totally. of those are poems. Well, Tolkien Clearly. deeply studied Beowulf. Right. He's even been asked about the connection, and he said, Beowulf was deep in my mind. I didn't think about it explicitly, but I, I can't say that it didn't influence me. And but so even, that conversation is much more safe to talk about. But even if Ezra Pound wasn't thinking about the Shakespeare sonnet when he wrote uh, The Petals on a Wet Black Bow. Like, if you're going to be talking about the passage of time, if you're going to be talking about trees and dead things, like some commentators, I don't know if I ascribe to this, but some people would say you cannot escape it. Like, if you are going to even put put tree imagery Mm -hmm. in your poem talking about time, you are now going to be in conversation with Shakespeare, whether you are explicitly thinking that when you write the poem or not. Because I tend to think of these at at a more thematic level. So you're saying that because the uh, Black Bow bow is is referenced, that's the pointer to Shakespeare. I think more it's the topic of the passage of time, Mm -hmm. which will then tie this in. But here's the thing. So we only get, we can only get to saying that this poem by Ezra Pound is about the topic of the passage of time Mm. because of that imagery of the imagery that Shakespeare used in this poem, not just that Shakespeare used, but if you looked at this poem and so, for example, if I gave this to a student who had no initiation to any sort of poetry and his his or her knowledge of English symbolism was essentially nascent. If they, if so, they've never even put together that the season of fall could symbolize old age. They've never thought about that. And I said, All right, guys, here's a poem. And I read it The Apparition of the Faces in a Crowd, Petals on a Wet Black Bow. And I said, This poem is actually talking about the passing of time and thinking about death of all these people that you're looking at. My students would be like, How did you get there? Sure. Right? But that's um, because you're operating at a higher level of interpretation than they are. Right. Or you need to teach them. This is here are the steps I'm going through to, you know, this or ties to this, this ties to this. Or I'm a crazy person. Sure. I don't yeah. think, but I don't think you're a crazy it person. It also would indicate that you're part of a conversation that they have only caught glimpses of. Yes. Right. So, I mean, whether or not this, this is a reference to Shakespeare, if you are not part of the great conversation at all, when you encounter one of these poems, you will draw conclusions like you would if you had just caught snippets of someone else's conversation. Yeah. Like, for example, if, yeah. If you just caught someone talking about firing somebody else, you'd think that they were going to get fired. But in fact, maybe they were. Never mind. That's a bad example. But I know what you're saying. Yeah, like catching catching just a little bit of a conversation mm-hmm. is a is a. 
they could do the same thing. They could be tying in other examples that aren't Shakespeare, but they see they they have points of reference for it. If someone has been in a subway before, like they, they point to their own experience, mm-hmm. and that's what they tie in instead of a historical literary example, mm-hmm. right? But so, that, that is you're saying that's a lower level of interpretation. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying it's lower. Um, you need to. So let's say that someone read that poem, "The Apparition of Faces in a Crowd, Petals on a Wet Black Bough," and they came to the conclusion that, yeah, sometimes when I look at crowds, I think about their lives and the fact that they're living their own lives and they're going to die one day. Like, you only get to that conclusion if you personally, luckily, had those thoughts at one point in your life mm-hmm. in a subway. Mm-hmm. But if you've read Shakespeare or any other poems that have talked about this or are I'll talk it yeah we'll talk about how to get initiated into the great conversation which sounds a lot more impressive than I actually think it is um, but if you sort of have a command of symbols and metaphors then you don't ever have to have been to a subway to be able to understand what pound is talking about All right sure. so let's talk a little bit about metaphors and symbols because I think those are the gateways into underst- into being able to understand poems. I remember a professor I had at the University of Toronto, uh, Professor Rabbitans. I think her first name was Julie. I think it was Julie Rabbitans. Rabbit hands? No, Rabbitans. Rabbit hands. No, no. Rabbit she, hands. No, no. She was great. Because um, she had a little rabbit. Uh, anyway. She was uh, <laughs> so cute. Uh, I know. really short and spunky. Would and rabbits long ears? <laughs> no. <laughs> Love to hop. Um, was, in fact, a rabbit. Yeah. Oh, if Ate she, salad all the time. Honestly, uh, <laughs> Professor Rabbitaz, I am so sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, but she, I remember her saying like, the way you need to get into the poem, you need to sort of find some sort of central metaphor. You need to um, uh, have some kind of foothold into the metaphor of of the poem. Um, all right. We talked about metaphors on earlier podcasts. Really brief, a metaphor is a basically an analogy um, that has three parts. You have the, the vehicle, so it's an image that's being used. You have the tenor, uh, all of the things that you can say about that image. And then you have the turn, ev- or everything, sorry, apologies. You've got the vehicle, the image being used. So in this case, let's say a lion. You have the tenor, the thing that you're actually talking about, AJ. And if you said AJ is a lion, well, the turn is now everything that you can say about all the connotations you get about AJ by ascribing to him the characteristics of lionness. He's furry. Yeah. Sometimes locked in a cage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Regal. Yeah. King of the jungle. Um, eats raw meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Eats raw meat. That's all I got. Very lazy. <laughs> the lady lions do all the work for him. All the work. <laughs> yep. Anyway. <laughs> Loves um, gazelles. Uh, uh, so we talked, yeah, if you want to go back and listen to an old episode on metaphors, you can. Um so in poems, you're looking for that metaphor. And um, let me just read. I want to read a little excerpt on uh, metaphor from the Handbook of Literature by William Harmon and Hugh Holman. You need a hobby. This, this Is this what you read for fun? No, no. This is just a Handbook of Literature. Harmon and Holman, this is this is, this is is the 10th edition. It's the real deal. This Harmon and Holman, don't screw around. No, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying Two it's like not a big deal or not. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, I'm not saying it's not a big deal. I'm saying this is insane to me that you're reading a handbook to literature for kicks and giggles. This one is le- less of a, it's more of a reference book. Yeah. Okay. It's is... not a read beginning to end. Great. If you're looking for a kick, okay. read a style manual. Sure. Those are really Whoa. get your jets going. Y'all if you want crotch, if we were talking about crotch being crotchety before this podcast, yeah, sure. if you want to see crotchety, people, Stone and Bell, read or... in any English style mm-hmm. manual mm-hmm. and you will just, 
like you will feel the frustration <laughs> seething off the page. Sounds because of all the bad yes, writing that happens. Because of all the bad writing. Sounds that riveting. So it's actually pretty fun. <laughs> so those are metaphors, and then the higher metaphors, oh, they're higher, um, are symbols. Symbols are tricky things. Even this is gonna sound arrogant. Even I can't <laughs> distinguish between them. Oh my! No, no, I still have trouble with really understanding, the, uh, parsing out the difference between a metaphor and a symbol. Let me just read a little bit of the excerpt on a symbol from Harmon and Holman, and maybe and this can help us understand a little bit more about poems. And this section in Harmon and Holman is huge. If you go to read about a symbol, yeah, isn't it a couple of pages? Uh, if I remember well, right? there's symbol and then symbolism, and then it keeps going. Yeah, so it's a, it's a big section. When some of the terms that they talk about are only mm-hmm. a few lines, the symbol section is pretty hefty. So a symbol is something that is itself and also stands for something else. As the letters A-P-P-L-E are the letters, mm-hmm. and then they also stand for the word apple. Mm-hmm. Or a flag is a piece of cloth, and it also stands for the idea of a country. That's the easiest one, I think, to wrap your head around, yeah, right? Any flag. flag is going to represent some sort of thing, organization, Sure, country. the ideals, the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. In a literary sense, a symbol combines a literal and sensuous quality with an abstract or suggest- suggestive aspect. It is advisable to distinguish blah, blah, blah. Um, where are we? If we consider an image to have a concrete referent in the objective world and to function as image when it powerfully evokes that reference, referent, then a symbol is like an image in doing the same thing but different from it in going beyond the evoking of the objective referent by making that referent suggest a meaning beyond itself. In other words, a symbol is an image that evokes an objective concrete reality and prompts that reality to suggest another level of meaning. Oh, man, so, that was the easiest thing I've ever heard to yeah. understand. Really, like, I'm it's, so on board. Yes, it's very technical in this uh, Harmon and Holman. <laughs> but let's see, okay, can we translate that into regular talk? Um, it's it, a concrete it, it's image. a physical thing. Yeah. So uh, a symbol has is... Um, like you some like justice can't be a symbol. Yeah, can't be a just. Yeah, so something can symbolize justice. Yes. Um, and so we have like blind lady liberty, right? Or not lady liberty, blind lady justice with right. her scales. Right. That's a, there's a symbol of justice, and the scales mean something. But it's something concrete and tangible, right? It's mm-hmm. a woman holding the scale. The scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't see. So can't see. and then the definition goes on to say that in literature, there's kind of two kinds of symbols. There is like a grab bag of symbols that everybody can use that always mean the same thing. So the flowing water, like a stream, a river can be what? What's that can be a symbol of? Passage of time. Yeah, usually. passage of time. And like, um, you know, like water under the bridge, something has passed along. Yeah. And going on a voyage suggests the passing of a life. Mm, sure. The four seasons are the four... Uh, seasons of your life, spring, summer, fall, winter. That's such a common one, yeah. right? The, if you're in the fall of life or the winter mm-hmm. of life, you're near the end, right? Exactly. Yeah. So then you've got these, this um, uh, almost like a toolkit of symbols ready-made for you, like 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 paint mm-hmm. for, uh, or not even like paint, like um, um, color palettes, mm-hmm. like all these colors work together. Well, all of these, all of these images work together to create this meaning. Well, even to bring up painting, like there is a set series of symbols that the ancient world used to use in painting to denote who somebody was. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Who somebody was or what they were doing or qualities. Like, for example, most depictions of Jesus Christ in the ancient world have him wearing two different colors, orange and blue, one symbolizing humanity, one symbolizing divinity, right? 
So yeah, he's consistently wearing two different colors of robes to show his two different natures. That's cool. It's one of those fun things where if you look at like portraits, you'll see like um, if there's a desk, if you look at the things on it, it tells you that usually like the job of that person, like anyway, it's a thing that you can see repeated across multiple um, images. Yeah. Yeah. And like uh, the disciples, there was always little indicators of which one was which Mm -hmm. in paintings and they usually followed the same Mm -hmm. symbols. symbols. Now these understandings of symbols can sort of fade out of either taste or vogue, or we can just sort of forget about them. When we talk about the, the ocean, the great deep, it used to mean kind of like the scary unknown chaos um, going off and, and uh, into the great unknown. But now that we've, man has kind of tamed the ocean, I don't think many of us fear it as this great killer or this great, you know, depth of the unknown anymore. So if you talked about the ocean and, and now, it, I don't think it carries the same kind of meaning of chaos that it meant to the ancient world. You think more of like PBS or Nova series on exactly. like submarines. Yeah, or you think about it as like, you know, this frontier to explore as opposed to this place of madness and, and, uh, and you know. Probable death. Yeah, yeah. or the subconscious, right? Oftentimes yeah. the, uh, the, the depths are talking about man's subconscious. Um, okay, so things can sort of fade or be in, or in and out of vogue over time. So, but those are the grab bag symbols. And so when you were reading a poem mm-hmm. like uh, Ezra Pound's, um, when it's talking about, you know, dead leaves, dead petals on a black bough, uh, it's hard not to read into that by talking about the passage of time, the end of spring, the coming of fall, people aging, the passing of time, and then ascribing that to the faces that you see in the subway are like the petals that you see on the black bow, the black concrete of the subway platform, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then there's the second kind of symbol, which is something that is... Um, well, I'll read it. The other type of symbol acquires its suggest- suggestiveness not from qualities inherent in itself, but from the way in which it is used in a given work. Thus, in Moby Dick, the voyage, the land, the ocean are objects pregnant with meaning that seem almost independent of Melville's use of them in his story. On the other hand, the white whale is invested with meaning and different meanings for different crew members. So The first level is... And Moby Dick would be the journey itself. That yeah, is- so the journey being life. So, okay, mm-hmm. Moby, you know, Melville, even if he doesn't, even if he didn't have that at the forefront of his mind, the mm-hmm. fact that he has a journey going on, sure. he needs to be cool with us interpreting his book about that the journey is like life, that a whale hunt is like a, is like an existence. But because there aren't like a ton of examples of white whales before Moby Dick, that's the second level. Exactly. He so creates his own. He creates his own symbol. Okay. And, um, and so you can only know what, a, what the symbol of the white whale is by reading the story. Right. Whereas if you've never read Moby Dick and you, and you knew, and if I said, well, it was a voyage, uh, and you can say like, oh, well you, you could be talking, that book could also be talking about a human lifespan because mm-hmm. it's talking about a voyage. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. So same is true with poems. So poetry can have these symbols that are sort of open to everyone, and then poems can have their own symbols. Like an own internal language. Yes, its own internal language. Um, yeah. So, for example, in Moby Dick, the the whale in Moby Dick is different than whales are typically used everywhere else, right? Whales are often peaceful and invested with some sort of grand majesty, right, in, in a lot of other works, whereas in Moby Dick... The whale it's a is jerk. Well, and the whale is specifically <laughs> as for for Ahab a symbol of the 
the malevolent spirit behind nature that will strike out at you, mm-hmm. right? The thing that wants to is mysterious, spiritual, and wants to hurt humans. The whale is the symbol of that. So, but that symbol isn't really found in many other places. Right. That's right. Some some pokey on on my my land made my thumb bleed the other day. I was chopping down some bushes and uh, looked at my hand. And I was bleeding. Nature <laughs> strikes out it's at going, you. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the, now the Graham hates bushes and will hunt them. That's what it sounds like. I bought a wood chipper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, fight back. I did. It's very fun. It was so your buying of the wood chipper was like the forging of the spear. That's right. In tempering it in blood in Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I had. I, we all had this like dark baptism around it and like chanted and I'm going to kill that bush. <laughs> I've only read Moby Dick once. I can't remember if that's what they did. They did something like that. This is close. They all swore to mm. basically Wasn't fight there it a to coin the... that they hammered into a mask? Later. Yeah, yeah oh, that was okay. a later thing and then you see everyone's different interpretation of it. In fact, the coin would be a great uh, Example parallel to poetry, right? right? Where everyone looks at it and sees something different. Ah, interesting. But aren't there, there are better and worse interpretations of that doubloon? Like it tells you something about the character? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. in the doubloon, their, their vision of it tells you something about the person themselves yeah. and but that as a coin comes with less internal, real imagery and less artistic in investment yep. than a poem would. Right? Sure. A poem actually has a consciousness behind it. Right. A coin has less. That's good. So um, another kind of poem that adds another layer to this is something that's called an ekphrasis. Do you, you, know make, an, you make these words up. No, no. That's a type of octopus, isn't yeah, it? Seriously. An ekphrasis. Uh, it's a Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I choose you. Yeah. A wild ekphrasis emerged. <laughs> Hannenberg used poetic interpretation. It was very effective. Uh, <laughs> no. This is the uh, vivid, often dramatic verbal description of a visual work of art, yes. right? Oh, yeah. So an ekphrasis yeah, is a poet is looking at a piece of art and is writing a poem about that art. So this is an, an easier entrance into a great conversation type of poem. Whereas with our... Uh, we read a couple of those in senior we year, do. don't I'm we? I'm actually going to read one. Oh, with nice. our With our... Pound referencing Shakespeare, we can only speculate. But with an ekphrasis, now you've got a poet definitely making reference to a specific work of art. And so if you can go and look at that art and and pictures, paintings, art have their own readings. And if you can do a reading of that art and then bring that reading to this poem... Well, now you've sort of got this this uh, superimposed interpretation of the poem and the art piece. Yep. The, the the poem is interpreting the art. Your interpretation of the art is be, is coming to bear on the poem, and it's almost like I always think of an ekphrasis as like a little, um, like a little laboratory for uh, for doing this kind of thing that we were talking about before, because it's because you're not wrong in this sense. Like it is explicitly making reference to something. So um, a very famous ekphrasis is a sh- rather short poem, which I'm going to read, if I can uh, find it. This is this uh, the Auden yeah, one y'all do? Hmm? This is the Auden poem from yeah. junior year? So this is a poem by W.H. Auden called Musée des Beaux-Arts, which is, which is a museum in Paris. Um, and in it, um, this poem, he talks about uh, a painting of uh, Bruegel, which is like the English way of saying his name. It's probably like Bruegel or something. <laughs> Pieter Bruegel. Yeah. Um, and the, the poem of Icarus. Yeah. So now we've got three levels here. Right. We've got the story of Icarus. We've got Bruegel's painting of Icarus. And now we've got W.H. Auden's poetry about Bruegel's story of Icarus. 
So it'll be really quick because this is a classical podcast. The story of Icarus is... Wait, wait. Are we about to do art again? Kind of. <laughs> this yeah. is our this second is time. Like number is. two. This Great. is like number two. I'm so excited. Um, so uh, the story of Icarus, Icarus and his dad... Oh, what's his dad's name? I'll find out. Um, no, I, I want to I remember. Are you ready? Yeah, I don't want to be... D-A-E... Uh, uh, Daedalus. 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 Oh, oh, dad. Oh, that's Bono. Daedalus. Daedalus. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, uh, are trapped on some island, and then um, they... They're f- in the labyrinth, right? Are they're in the labyrinth with the Minotaur, and, they're, and then that's Dad on, figures out creep. how they can get out. Mm-hmm. on creep, yeah. Dad figures out how they can get out. He makes wings, mm-hmm. and he's like, hey, Icarus, buddy, <laughs> uh, these things are only made out of wax, so don't, don't fly too high. We just, we're just trying to get off the island. And Icarus is like, yeah, nuts to that. Yeah. And flies too close to the sun. The sun melts his wax, and he falls into the ocean, and his father, who is lower, has to watch his son plummet to the earth. Stinks. Um, the moral of the story is listen to your dad. <laughs> Good. That's, um, that's a great lesson. Good. And don't fly too close to the sun. In fact, okay. now we even have a phrase. Mm. So, okay, there's the story. And then if you are listening to this, I don't know, in like a comfortable easy chair or something, you may want to just pull up um, Bruegel's Icarus. So you can see the poem. If you're driving in your car, don't do that. <laughs> that's good. Good yeah. advice. Yeah. Um, so here's the poem. It's not very long by W.H. Outham. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when, an age, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who do not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course. Anyhow, in a corner, some untidy spot where the dog goes on with their doggy life, and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had, too, on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. So in the painting, you have a little boat uh, sailing away, you got a little shepherd kind of looking over his shoulder, and you see these legs splashing in the water. But the legs are really tiny. Well, that's, right? <clears throat> so I just pulled this up. Yeah. I, don't, I don't teach this like you all do, and so I, I thought I had the wrong piece of art because you don't see Icarus. Like he's you, so he's small. So small. You have to, like look. So like the thing front and center is this dude um, pulling a little pulling a plow. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you have to like look for Icarus. It, mm-hmm. The point being made of like this is not a big deal to these people is very clear from looking at the the painting itself that Icarus is a small part of life. And even though it's some great tragedy, it's not a big deal to anyone else. else. Yeah. And even so Bruegel's interpretation of the story is, is, is talking about that. Right. Right. I mean, you could argue when you read the story of Icarus, Icarus is the central character and we are supposed to take the great moral about his, you know, on his ignoble death. P.S. I looked it up. They weren't in the labyrinth. They were locked in a tower by the King so that knowledge of the labyrinth wouldn't get out. (laughs) Oh man. It gets it gets more complex. Yeah. Um, but and then the painting and then um, the the painting is saying, listen, there's tragedies. There are people who are having their epic tragedy falling into the water. Icarus is falling, 
but there's a dude plowing, there's a ship right. sailing, kind of life goes on. And that can be a sad thing, and that can be a really, really comforting thing. Yeah. Um, and then Auden is coming in and writing a poetry saying, basically praising these old po- these old painters who knew this truth. And he mentions the Icarus, and he also mentions, you know, a painting of someone who's being brutally martyred, but in the background there's like a donkey scratching its butt, right. which I believe exists in a painting. I don't know which one it is. Or, you know, all of the the wise men who are uh, there super stoked for the birth of Jesus, but in the background there's like kids skating, and they're not, they don't really know what's going on. Yeah, they're like playing hockey and yeah. running around, and they don't really care that something it's huge It's a great Canadian painting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even if you read the story of Jesus, that's true. The pe- people at the inn put him in a barn. Yeah. Like yeah. he, they could have said, oh my gosh, the king is being born. Let's give him the best suite. Right. But, but they had no idea. They right. had no idea. So they stuck him in the barn and those people probably had a fine meal and then went to bed mm-hmm. no, not knowing that anything amazing was happening. Right. That's right. So here you now have with this painting, you've got um, uh, an, an external reference that the painting is actually making reference to. And you can now use out into interpret Bruegel and you can kind of practice having these two art forms talking to each other. Um, there's there's also an ekphrasis that happens where um, it's not actually referencing a specific art piece, but it's referencing um, maybe an, something that's used in a story. So Auden has another one. I'm not going to read this one because it's super long, but it's called The Shield of Achilles. AJ, can you give us like a brief, like 10 second rundown of the shield of Achilles in the Iliad? In the Iliad, the shield of, so Achilles is, he needs new armor because his buddy Patroclus, his best friend, got totally smoked by Hector. And then Hector stole his armor. And and Patroclus had been wearing Achilles' armor sort of on a loan. And mm-hmm. so Achilles has lost his armor. And so Hephaestus makes him a whole new set. And it spends almost an entire chapter talking about the engravings on this shield. And the graving, engravings are a level of artistry that's almost unattainable. It depicts two cities. It depicts the entire cosmos. It depicts life in these two different cities. And there's weddings and there's, you know, dancing and there's judging and there's criminals and there's, it's basically the entire Greek world mm-hmm. depicted on this shield, right? And much of it seems happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the entire, yeah, and much of it seems happy on the shield, right? Yeah, much. it's, it's, Two cities mm-hmm. and one is filled with strife and one is filled with lawful peace. And so is there, I don't know about an official reading, is there a kind, uh, um, how do you teach that as a symbol? Or how do you, is there a metaphor there? I mean, it sounds like, what's the deal with Hephaestus giving Achilles a shield that has the city in the ascent and the city in the descent? It almost it, sounds like a fate thing or the wheel it, of fortune. Or yeah, something like and it that. seems, it, it certainly seems to hint that one city is like Troy because it's, because it's lawful and well-ruled, and then one is in undergoing internal turmoil, right? And so it's kind of sort of divided against itself, which is much like the Greek army. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. as Achilles carries this into battle, he almost carries the fate of the Greek world, right? Yeah. And now you, even on that shield, the, the, the picture... So the fact that Hephaestus is doing an interpretation in his art of what's going on now the shield itself almost becomes a tool for us as the reader to interpret the story. Who's like, what is the real tragedy? The fact that Troy is burning or the fact that the Greeks are conquerors, right? Like, like Troy was the beautiful city. Um, and, and anyway, we don't need to go down that rabbit trail. But um, uh, having stories that give you tools of its own interpretation is something that I find really fascinating. The Bible does it a lot. Um, 
I may have talked about it on this podcast. Remember in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus has to heal a dude twice? Do you remember this? Like he goes and he, and this guy's blind and then Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud and puts it on his face it looks and like he wipes walking. it off. And he's like, what do you, can you see? And the guy's like, kind of not really. Those trees look like, du- those dudes look like trees or those trees look like dudes. And Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud and puts it on his eyes again. He's like, now can you see? And the guy's like, yeah. yeah. As a kid, I was like, ooh, this is shameful. Because oh. I was like, Jesus. Kinda, he screwed it up the first time. He screwed it up the first time. I was like, come on, man. Um, but in there, you've got. That story is 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 helping you understand what the the entire theme of the Gospel of Mark. I know we've talked about this on an earlier podcast before. Anyway, those kinds of things I found fascinating. So then you have Auden. He comes and he writes a poem about, about the shield of Achilles, and he fleshes out those two cities, and he talks about those two cities. Um, and in it, um, he's basically talking about post post old Canadian. Um, <laughs> he's talking about post war uh, Europe in these cities, um, and um, um, I don't know how f- too far we're going to get into it, but it's, 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 in a fr- it's an ekphrasis of something, of an art piece that actually doesn't exist, um, but it exists, you know, it's a, it's a in call. In literature. Yeah, it's yeah. a call to the classical Greek he, world. He essentially contrasts the glory of Greek war with the absolute yes. heartless exactly. tragedy of modern war. Thank you. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of industrialized warfare we have now versus the the romance of reading the Iliad. Yeah. And um, he says, this is war. And then the question is, has war always been this way mm. or is modern world war inhumane? Is war ever humane? Anyway. Yeah. Um, poems can also take those symbols um, and reinterpret them and change mm. them. Uh, the one that I can think of off the top of my head is a poem by um, Keats, John Keats, called La Belle Dame Sans Merci, which translates to The Beautiful Woman Without Pity, or The Pretty... Isn't that all of them? The Pretty Lady, <laughs> the pretty lady Without Mercy, uh, especially if they're French, I think. Dang. Um, oh, my word. Um, La Belle Dame Sans Merci. And so what it takes is an old trope or an old symbol of the medieval world, the knight riding off on some sort of mission and then a beautiful maid who's actually some kind of devious witch um, who seduces him and takes him from his mission and brings him down from like honorable Christian knight to a ruined knight, right? There's a, there's a, a pretty typical story from the Middle Ages. And he writes this story, but he's writing this in the 19th century, and he reinterprets that symbol. He reinterprets that little story by having the um, the Belle Dame, the beautiful woman, um, like causing the knight to fall, but not wanting to and being sad about it. So the knight was almost inevitably going to fall for this fairy maiden, and she cries when it as she he she sort of cries as he takes her and go and she takes him to his house hmm. and feeds him his feeds the night the fairy food and he falls into the dream into dream where all the guys are like dude you're you're screwed so um, it's a commentary on how beauty itself is merciless yeah well right? either that or there's also something of that there's so if if the beautiful thing that so if the conclusions of the old story are that be careful, beautiful things can sort of take you away from your quest 
of godliness. Let's see, let's put it in that way. This interpretation says, beautiful things who are taking you away from your quest of godliness may be doing it because they are, they have to, or not because they have to, but they are incapable of, of not doing it. Because that is the nature of beauty. It's like beauty is, yeah, it's like beauty is cursed in that it is going to inevitably have these people that fall in love with it, whereas beauty doesn't want to be fallen in love with. Beauty wants to be a reflection of God. Or, Which is the same message of Helen. Yeah, mm. yes. Yeah. Or I was going to say like the curse of one of those like um, island nymphs, which is the one that like everyone, she falls in love with everybody, but no one gets to stick around. Calypso. Yeah. And she's the, uh, she's the daughter of a titan. Oh, well, whatever. I think she's a nymph. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, she's a nymph, the nymph Calypso. I just I like the, oh, well, whatever. That's good. But anyway. um, you just, you just whatever Calypso? I did, whatever what the Calypso. Heck? Oh. No, but I mean like there's something to that where um, here it's almost like beauty has this curse in that it's going to cause, you know, good people their downfall um, because of something that they can't change. It's beauty. So what is this saying about art? Can Does, does art have a seductive power that can ruin a man even though it doesn't in, intend to? And, and, and so, you know, like um, there's... We talked about this in the Boethius podcast. Mm-hmm. This is what um, Boethius, well, this is what uh, Lady Philosophy says to Boethius about songs. He's like, sometimes just wallowing in beautiful, sad things is not helpful. Right. Um, That's when she chases off the uh, the muses, right? Yes. The poetry. Right. Open the beginning. shades, my man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sit up. Stop yeah. listening to sad music in the dark. Yeah. That's what she so says. So then. Um, just like that. So here's yeah, a poem. Exactly here's a poem written in the 19th century that's reinterpreting a trope of the Middle Ages and a fairly simple trope. Right. Um, beautiful lady can can knock you off your course. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah. And then is in, uh, by reinterpreting it to talk about beauty and nature, or sorry, beauty and art itself and, and sort of the trappings of uh, um, uh, beauty that has been removed from uh, any sort of right ordering of the loves. Um, so those are the different kinds of ekphrasis. And even just the way we're talking about it, you can see how when you get into it, how these poems are talking to each other right. and how if you have – so this is why in a classical school – in the younger grades, um, we just need to f- fill them with the stories. We just need to give them all of these stories. They need to know who Calypso is. They, like, I don't, because I don't. Like, you know, uh, they need to because, the, or you could end up like me. Oh, good. Um, they need to know the story. Are you just a cautionary tale? That's yeah, I'm a cautionary all these tale. students. That's what they I heard. Need all to know. classical <laughs> teachers are just cautionary tales. <laughs> they need to know what the Learn lotus eaters are. Oh, right? What's the, what are the, lotus, the lotus eaters? The lotus eaters are a group of people that Odysseus encounters, and and his his men go and eat the lotus, and it turns out the lotus basically just makes you forget home. It's the temptation of total oblivion. And so he actually has to grab his men, tie them to the benches and force them to row out because they had all forgotten home and family and journey and everything. Yeah. So it's basically like an opium den. It's like an opium. And then there's a famous poem called The Lotus Eaters by, oh gosh, can't remember. Bono? Um, hmm? Bono? Bono? <laughs> I'm <just> oh. <laughs> You too? Maybe. Sting? Uh, Huge fan. Uh, maybe. Is it, is it Pound again? Maybe it's, Pound. Uh, Frank uh, Herbert. Tennyson. Tennyson. Oh, okay. Oof. Sorry. Tennyson. Um, uh, anyway, so like you need to know all these things. You need to have filled their little brains with all of the 
basically like all of the grab bag of the potential symbols that there are so that so they can that, yeah. uh, make the uh, connect those meanings when uh, when reading newer poetry that's right okay so that you're not only stuck in your own sensuous experience of a poem and when i mean sensuous i mean just enjoying the sound of it or enjoying the the uh, the the flow of the words or stuck in your own private interpretation of it so you're squarely on the side of interpreting that pound poem through Shakespeare or other places where those images are used. That's the right way to approach. I don't know if it's, if you would call it the right way, because there's something wrong with having your own personal experiences of a poem. For example, um, um, Wordsworth poem, Tintern Abbey, I has a lot of personal resonance for me, but now that I'm older and I read it differently, now that I'm older and I, and I teach it more often, I realize how long winded it is. And so maybe it's making a point, but it's making it not effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, um, to close out this discussion, do we need to uh, do a part two? Is this, I don't think so. No, I think we're, 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 uh, oh, maybe we we will talk about poetry again. We will talk about poetry again on the podcast at some point, but to sort of finish this out, I want to read a poem that, uh, I really like, and it's by a poem named, I don't know if it's Jeannie or Jean or Jean. It's one of, you know, when a name is spelled J-E-A-N-N-E, it's a little ambiguous. Jean? Jean yeah, could be. Okay, pause. Before you do that, just so my pun goes understood, oh. Sopsis is a... Oh, my word. ...is an, a way <laughs> Sorry, of analyzing 38 minutes poetry. in, we didn't even do it. We didn't even get close. So <laughs> you, you Sopsis mean minutes is in. a method for analyzing poetry. Each letter stands for something. It's an acronym for like a, a just a basic... <laughs> method for understanding yes so if you're curious like, you can go look that was the joke okay. good great. it's like symbol, symbol no no occasion. it's uh what is it uh setting audience like, occasion occasion purpose, audience. style imagery sound yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was okay. like that you think anyone remembers that from an hour ago <laughs> I, if they were to listen for it and to go back and you know I, it's a pun that makes no sense if yeah. you don't have that at all That's anyway fair. i thought yours would be a better yep, ending sorry, than like guys. me claiming um, yeah your we totally didn't yeah, get sure. there but anyway uh i'll say it's gene gene murray walker wrote this poem called staying power i'm just gonna read it in appreciation of maxime gorky at the international convention of atheists 1929. Like Gorky, I sometimes follow my doubts outside to the yard and question the sky, longing to have the fight settled, thinking I can't go on like this. And finally, I say, all right, it is improbable. All right, there is no God. And then, as if I'm focusing a magnifying glass on dry leaves, God blazes up. It's the attention, maybe, to what isn't there that makes the emptiness flare like a forest fire until I have to spend the afternoon dragging the hose to put the smoldering thing out. Even on an ordinary day, when a friend calls, tells me they've found melanoma, complains that the hospital is cold, I say, God. God, I say, as my heart turns inside out. Pick up any language by the scruff of its neck, wipe its face, set it down on the lawn, and I bet it will toddle right into the godfire again, which, though they say it doesn't exist, can send you straight to the burn unit. Oh, we have only so many words to think with. Say God's not a fire. Say anything. Say God's a phone, maybe. You know you didn't order a phone, but there it is. It rings. You don't know who it could be. You don't want to talk, so you pull out the plug. It rings. You smash it with a hammer till it bleeds springs and coils and clobbery metal bits. It rings again. You pick it up, and a voice you love whispers hello.
It's good. Ooh, I like it. Yeah, it's a good poem. That's a good poem. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first, just so that you don't think I'm a misogynist, my comment about beautiful women all being merciless. <laughs> oh my word. I, I've this been is feeling guilty about stuff you got since. wrong. <laughs> yeah, this is already a class. It's just I can feel the comments coming. It is a comment on beauty itself being merciless, not women inherently being merciless. Beautiful dudes are the same way, right? Wow. Beauty itself is without mercy. It will Which is kind of what we'll you. talk about next episode. Ooh, so this kind, kind of ties in. So, okay. pretty good. Yeah, so just to sort of preempt all the accusations of misogyny, I'm not a misogynist. Anyway, uh, so this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. We are three non-misogynists <laughs> talking about the classical world. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can check out our website at classicalstuff.net. You can tweet at us at clssc... The S T. No, nope, stop. C L S S C A L stuff. There you go. There it nailed it. Just nailing it all over the place yep. today. Yep. And we will try to twit or email or whatever back to you. Cool. And Phew. you can find all of our back episodes on our website. The way we distribute can only have about a hundred episodes at a time, but you can always go find the back stuff. Yep. You know, it's on all the website. There. Yeah. All right. If you want to chat us up on the street, well, <laughs> you know what we look like. So good luck with that. Anyway, see you later. <laughs> and this is AJ and the boys signing off for Bye. classical stuff. Bye. Bye. Bye.